You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, September 10th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. So, Kara, welcome back from Africa. Well, How thank was it? you. It was How amazing. Was it? it was of awesome. Course. I went to three countries, so um, I had been to Namibia previously. Did this you go to trip. Nambia? I hear it's really good. <laughs> 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 I'm such an idiot, too, because somebody posted, I was so tired, and somebody posted on my Instagram underneath a picture I posted. It's like, hashtag Namibia. And they were like, don't you mean Nambia? And I was like, no, I mean Namibia. Like, I didn't even realize that that was like a Trump reference until <laughs> later when I thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I love Namibia. I've determined that... Like, this just reinforced my love for Namibia. I think it's my country. We went to Botswana, too. Botswana did not speak to me Mm -hmm. quite the same way, but I still really enjoyed it. Um, And uh, also a bit of time in South Africa. And guess what I saw? A lion? Uh, I did see lions, but guess what else I saw? A zebra? I did see lots of zebras. I did see fossils, but guess what else I saw? Uh, You saw a penguin. I saw a pangolin. A pangolin? A pangolin. Cool. Yeah. They're very, like... They're very, very shy. It's very rare to see one in the wild. I actually went out with a guy who's doing pangolin conservation research, and we tracked one, but we didn't actually end up seeing her. But I had the opportunity to go to like a rehab facility, vet clinic, where they had just recently received a pangolin that had been poached. Um, And so it was really sad. Like its claws were all broken and like half ripped out because it was trying to claw its way out of a container. Yeah, it was really sad. So they were doing treatment on its claws. They would um, kind of give them a light anesthetic and clean its claws and then tube feed it. So I was able to sit there while they were doing it and like touched its scales and really like saw a pangolin up close. It was like amazing. I got a bit misty. Wow. Yeah. That is cool. Did you see an okapi? I did not. They're, they're apparently even harder to see in the wild. Yeah, I didn't see any okapi. I saw um, a lot of hoofstock, zebras, giraffes. I ate giraffe. Whoa, oh, that's yeah. brave. Um, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. It was a bit gamey, um, but it was like minced giraffe, so they, they prepared it really well. My favorite is oryx and um, kudu. Uh, Springbok's really good too, so I did so do, eat some. Do, do they just eat a lot of bushmeat in Africa, or is that always like just a... Uh, an exotic dish even there. No, so game is really common um, because I also think that wild game is, like some of it is just, you know, hunted, but also at least for some of the antelope species and stuff, they also farm them because it's kind of like us eating venison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's so many, so much hoofstock there. Um, So yeah, a lot of times if you're at a restaurant that's like a fast food restaurant or something, it'll just be like beef and pork and chicken because farming is massive. But in nicer restaurants and also at lodges and things like that, it's not uncommon to be served game. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like it too. It's so good. And also biltong is very common, which is kind of like, um, kind of like what we would call beef jerky, except there, um, a lot of it is made out of game. So you can taste a lot of different meats, um, and they're dried. So they last for a lot longer, but it is hard when we, uh, I went on a road trip, which was really fun. So I rented like a kitted out four by four. So there's a, a rooftop tent that folds over and you just sleep in the tent on the roof oh. and, 
yeah, it was really great. The truck has everything you need, like cooking supplies, um, sleeping bags, camp chairs and everything. So you've got like your own portable living arrangements, which is really, really helpful. But the problem is when you cross from country to country, you know, they, they have to watch out for um, what's it called foot and mouth disease mm-hmm. and lots of different cloven footed diseases. And so you can't bring you have to like eat all the meat <laughs> that you have in your fridge um, before you cross country boundaries, which, you know, feel kind of arbitrary if you're on a road trip, but obviously they're boundaries for a reason, like they're governments that have different laws. Yeah. So when we're driving from the Limpopo region of South Africa up through Botswana and then into Namibia and uh, across the Caprivi, each time we stopped, we're like, do we have meat in the car? Oh, crap, please don't take it. You know, Uh, so there's that. You have to think about those things. But it was amazing. It was beautiful. Just so much wildlife, obviously, elephants and rhinoceros and um, uh, lions, saw cheetah. I didn't see a leopard this time, but I saw a leopard last time. And then this time I did see um, a buffalo, Cape buffalo. So I've seen the big five now, which was pretty cool. What Um, was your what was your number one experience? Strangely, because Botswana was not my like it's not my favorite country, especially compared to Namibia. I really love Namibia. But while I was in Botswana, it just happened to be where I was and when I was there. The Botswanan sunsets, I think, were really incredible. Like at one point in the Okavango Delta, um, I went on a boat ride in um, in part of the delta that was in Maremi National Reserve. And so saw this sunset over the water in the middle of the Okavango Delta. And just the sun is so big there. It's so big and it's so red. And when it sets, it's just, it's like all the photos you've seen of African sunsets. They're just stunning. And oh, so wow. that was really, really fun. Yeah. I've literally only been home for like a day and a half. I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of jet lag. How long I'm is so the flight? jet lagged. Uh, I spent 35 hours in transit, but oh not God. that much, not all that time in the air. So basically because uh, the road trip went from Joburg, which is like the easiest place to fly to, um, that's where uh picked up the 4x4 and then dropped it off in Vintuk, in, which is the capital city in Namibia, and then took like a small plane from Vintuk back to Joburg. So it started with the Vintuk flight, which is two hours, and then I had eight hours day- down in the Joburg airport. And then I think, I could be wrong, but I think it's like 12 hours to Heathrow, had a few hours down in London, and then another 12 hours back to LA. Yikes. Something oh, like that. Yikes. So, yeah, it's good. brutal. Like it's, it's getting to Southern Africa from Los Angeles Angeles is is hard. When you live on the East Coast, it's a little easier because there are direct flights from New York to Joburg. And they're, wow. um, I think, 18 hours. So it's like one of the longest flights you can take. But at least it's just one flight and you get it over with. For you guys going to Southern Africa, is this is almost the same for me going to like news, uh, going to Australia? Yeah. Because yeah, I can fly right. direct, but mm-hmm. it's like the longest flight you can take. Right. And we're all going to experience that together soon. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. New Zealand and Australia. Here we come. Coming from L.A. too. So that'll be really exciting to welcome you guys to to kind of my city and to do some gigs out here. I think it'll be super fun. Yeah. So when we're in L.A., while we're in L.A., this is on uh, November 23rd. That's Saturday. We have booked a location for an extravaganza. George is going to join us. We're going to do an extravaganza oh, while we're out there. Um, and then in the morning, we're going to, uh, we're still working out the location details, but we're going to also do a private recording of our show. So oh, fun. if you're in LA on November 23rd, on that Saturday, uh, we're going to have those two events, you know, a, a private recording and an extravaganza. Uh, cause we're, we'll be flying in Friday night and then we're flying out 
Saturday, Saturday night. night. So we have all day Saturday, to, and we're, we'll we'll hang with local skeptics while we're there. Also, that'll be um, my mom's seventy first birthday. Oh, very oh, cool. Wow. Maybe wow. she could come into town. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be fun. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dig into some news items. Bob, you're going to start off by telling us about super lightning. Yeah. The, the results of a recently published study of lightning reveals some really new and interesting details about, about what's called not super lightning, but super bolts. This is from University of Washington study. Uh, the lead writer is atmospheric and space physicist Robert Holsworth from the College of Washington. Now, Holsworth's knows his lightning. He's been studying it uh, for over 20 years. He also manages what's called the Worldwide Lightning Location Network. I was not aware of this. This is 100 lightning detection stations all around the world, six continents, including Antarctica, all over the place. So when lightning is detected by three or more of these stations, then they could really get a beat on it. And what uh, what they do is they compare the readings to determine um, the lightning bolt's size and location. It's kind of like, you remember when you were a kid? Remember when you're, you'd compare the time difference between the arrival of lightning and then it's thunder? Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's like that, but actually it's not like that at all, in fact. <laughs> um, so just ignore that. that so, so, <laughs> so actually what they detect are the radio waves produced by the lightning. And these are uh, from 3 to 30 kilohertz. So the study uh, ran from 2010 to 2018. So they got a good eight years. They um, actually determined the location and timing of guess how many lightning how many lightning strokes did they detect? 4,927. Over 10 years? Oh, eight wait, years. No idea. There's one every eight second. Years. Million, billions. All right. Um, well, not billions. Lots. Two billion. Huh? Two billion. billion. Yeah. Well, they, not billions. Two billion. They, they got two. They got two billion. Yeah, billions is correct. Wow. But uh, with only a hundred, a hundred stations around the world, I mean, two billion still is sounds like a huge number. So, what did they find? They found that of the two billion strokes that they detected, four millionths of a percent, or one in two hundred fifty thousand strokes, were confirmed superbolts. Now, a superbolt in this context is defined as releasing a, the electrical energy of more than one million joules. So, I try. Of course, I've got to put that into perspective. That's that's a, about a thousand times the energy of an average bolt of lightning. Okay, that's one. And one way to comp- to think of this is it's the kinetic energy of two metric ton vehicle traveling at thirty two meters per second. So, this is a, it's a hell of a wallop. And yes. I know a lot of you are thinking about it. This is the kind of bolt that Thor hit Hela with in Ragnarok. <laughs> oh, of course. Thinking about it. it. So, Thanks, of course. So, yes, right? Does that help? Full circle. Um, his, yep. was, his was probably even bigger. <laughs> you know, maybe a mil- million and a half or maybe even two million joules. Hard to say. So, uh, Holsworth said the average stroke energy over water is greater than the average stroke energy over land. We knew that. But – that's for the typical energy levels. We were not expecting this dramatic difference. So they knew about these uh, these super bolts before. These the fact that they existed were not new, uh, but the fact that they were so, they could be so dramatically strong uh, was uh, was kind of a, a surprise for them. They also found that uh, these super bolts are most common in the Mediterranean Sea, northeast Atlantic, and over the Andes, and they have uh, lesser hot spots east of Japan, in the tropical oceans, and off the tip of South Africa. Uh, did you see any, Kara? Any Probably what? not. Any of these super, super bolts? Any of these super bolts? I don't. I didn't so, see any lightning at all. Okay, uh, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like it, it did not rain. The it's whole interesting time because these bolts do do they do not encroach on the land. You, if you look at oh, gotcha. if you look at the pattern of strikes 
for some for these Super Bowls, they actually will outline the the, the coastline of, of various countries because they they just do they you know they're pretty much a, it's a water phenomenon. And the other thing, the other big thing that they determined was that we get most of our lightning here the, our, the summer storms, right? We get the we get our weather in the summer in the northern hemisphere, and uh, we get a lot of you know a lot of our biggest lightning will happen then. Um, for these Super Bowls, the big the big time of the year is November to to February. That's when that's when a lot of them are will happen over over bodies of water. Now, as opposed to the causes, what actually why does this happen? Why is there this pattern? Why are they so much stronger? And why do they uh, do they happen over over water? What actually is is happening here? They're not really sure. They think it might be related, or Holsworth thinks that it might be related to sunspots or cosmic rays. And he says, uh, but we're leaving that as stimulation for future research. So hopefully, in the future, we'll find out why um, these super bolts are what they are. And um, so interesting. I saw this all over the news. Like I got to get, I got to do a deep dive on this and see what's going on with these super bolts. So there you go. I guess they were news flashes. Bob, do they know why they only occur over water in that land? No. For all the, all the research I did, I couldn't find any hint of why, why it was just, they just happened. So I didn't see much like weather per se in, in Southern Africa, but guess what I did see a lot of? Uh, cyclones, water. I mean, water sucks. No, but dust devils. <gasps> cool, yeah, yeah. They're everywhere. Cool. So, like land cyclones. I knew it I was guess. some kind of cyclonic activity. Awesome. Yes, they they just crop up when you're driving. You see them constantly. They crop up and they can be so tall. Yeah, and amazing looking. Ever drive yeah. through one? No, but we've driven right past <laughs> one. It was pretty cool. Yeah, they are cool when you see those little dust devils. Okay, Jay, speaking yeah. of electricity, right? <laughs> tell us about the latest on lithium-ion batteries. So what I decided to do was take a little peek into the SGU archive and see about some of the discussions that we were having about batteries. And what I found was uh, episode 213, where we discussed battery technology. This was uh, a recording that we did 10 years and one month ago. So what's even more interesting here is that we actually say on the show in 2009 that there's all of these promises of new battery technology, but none of them are ever seemed to be able to get out of the laboratory and scale up to the consumer market. So we were talking about all this battery hubbub even 10, 11 years ago. We were getting the beginnings of becoming very jaded about the whole thing. <laughs> and we were even saying 10 years ago that we were – acknowledging that we just have to appreciate these small yearly incremental improvements that we're seeing. This was 10 years ago we were talking about this. Well, Kara, <laughs> freshly back from Africa, I'm happy to tell mm-hmm. you in particular, my friend and co-host, we finally do have some legitimate, real, cool, good battery technology news. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. I know you're all sitting down. Tesla has conducted <laughs> a three-year test, or they did three years of testing on their current lithium-ion battery technology in order to provide a baseline of what batteries can do today so we can more accurately gauge how much battery technology improves over the coming years, right? Pretty cool. So the tests that they were running over the past three years include long-term charge discharge cycling at 20, 40, and 55 degrees Celsius, long-term storage at 20, 40, and 55 degrees Celsius, high-precision kilometry at 40 degrees Celsius, and several different electrolytes are considered in this unbelievably you know, chemically-oriented graphite chemistry, including those that can promote fast charging, right? Now, the reason 
for the cell performance degradation and impedance growth. These are examined using several methods, and they've concluded that the battery type that Tesla has been working on should be able to power an electric vehicle, get ready, for 1.6 million kilometers or 1 million miles and last 20 years. Ooh. Of course, now now that means you still need to recharge it, right? It's yeah, not that's continuous. not a single. Yeah, you have to recharge it. That's yeah, not but the own, range. That's the that's, that's the, the life expectancy. Yeah. The lifespan of throwing that out there. Of, thank you. What is the there. standard? Like, what's the lifespan of the battery in my car? Um, Do we know. That's a good question. It, it's probably not at this level, but it's probably pretty good. Okay, I'm looking I, it up. Yeah, look it up, but I would bet you that it's not like. Unbelievably I saw something in the news uh, using the superchargers. I think degrades it much more, uh, much faster. But I think they they tested that after ten years. Is it ten years? You would lose like yeah. nine to ten percent. Um, yeah, this looks yeah. like some sort of test. Now there is this another one says thing that it lost eight percent at seventy thousand miles. Yeah. Which doesn't sound too bad. That, that's not that's okay. That's but compared good. compared yeah. to this battery, it's 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 not anywhere near this battery. But let me make sure I have to clarify a couple of things. Now, they were talking about it lasting 20 years in a grid energy storage environment, not in a car, right? Because I think the movement of the battery actually does some internal damage and could crack some of the textures that are inside that actually store the energy. But 1 million miles, guys, 1 million miles, 1.6 million kilometers of driving that, you know, that, that's 20 years. That, that's, you know, I don't know how many years the battery would last in a car, but that is a long time. I mean, yeah. how many, it's how longer many... than the car. So that's oh, yeah. right. The rest of the car is all, all you need as far as cars yeah. are concerned. You could, you could junk your car and keep the battery for your next car. And what does this battery cost? I didn't get into any of that. I mean, this is this is a battery that Six they have quintillion dollars. Right. No, this battery this battery <laughs> exists. It is it is our baseline battery. It's the Tesla baseline battery. It's not like you know you will ha- you know if you get a Tesla you're going to get this battery. The researchers have found that over three years of testing the lithium-ion NMC532 graphite battery cells have the potential to stay structurally sound long enough for cars to reach greater than 1 million miles. When they say the potential, is that like a term we should be taking a closer look at? Potential for mm. 1 million? But So anyway, I'm, I am legitimately impressed and happy. I'm not going to say I'm excited because... You know, I, my excitement wore, wore away ten years ago, but I'm I'm excited in a different kind of way. Like we have this yearly incremental improvement has finally gotten to the point where it's it's good now. It's good. We can we can put these batteries in cars, and they're going to last a long damn time. As long as it's affordable, yeah, then it's yep. wonderful. Yeah. No, they're going to go in Teslas. I mean, you're going to buy a, a twenty to forty thousand dollar Tesla, and so that's going to power their their baseline car. Yeah. Okay. Great. But Jay, I also want to point out, so all of those news items that were frustrating you 10 years ago because they made these bold promises that you think were never realized, a lot of those, and we've talked about this, a lot of those quote-unquote breakthroughs contributed to the incremental advances we've been seeing every year over the last 10 years. And then here we are, it's 10 years later, and lithium-ion batteries are a lot better than they were 10 years ago. They have larger uh, range, they're more stable. They have a greater life expectancy. That tech, the incremental improvements in that tech have added up quite a bit over the last decade. Just like with solar panels, you know, the incremental improvements have added up, you know, every year. So I think we had to shift our expectations. We shouldn't be waiting for a breakthrough, even though that would be more exciting. It's more that we just have to 
be content with the incremental advances every year, and, and they add up more quickly than you think. You know, they uh, they're cumulative, and so here we are. I think you know we're basically here. You know, I remember t- you know getting really interested in electric nah. cars tw- twenty years ago. And the tech just wasn't ready for prime time at that point. The ranges were really low. I mean, I mean it, obviously, you, you want them to be even better still. And they will. They'll be better next year. They'll be a little bit better the year after that. In another 10 years, it'll be awesome compared to where we are today. What's right? Yeah, problem, I mean, if, as well as, as, as great as the, you know, 20 years, a million miles, whatever, that, that's great. But I would, I would whack back 60% of that longevity if they had if they just had a nice a nice chunky increase in the energy density of these batteries i mean imagine you know 300 miles on a on a charge that's great and that was like kind of like the milestone right if you if you get over 300 or 250 then that that really makes it a viable option for lots of people and that's great but imagine if it was you know 800 or 1000 miles on a charge if you know and if we had a huge spike in in uh, the energy density that that we could have in these batteries, and we would we would you know that would be an amazing that would really start bringing people a lot more people in. Uh, Twenty years is great, but I, I would take ten years with a you know with a with a much greater range. But you know it's a balance. You know it's, it all comes down to a balance, and a great longevity is fine. But I'm just waiting for that you know that some. Yeah, you're really never going to be happy, solid- Bob. Bob, what do you think is <laughs> what's the average age of a car on the road today yeah. in the U.S.? I bet you. S- Really? Four years. Average. Oh, average. Five years? Average. Average age of a car. Four. Yeah, four is a a good number. Four years, I think. Five years. The average age of a car, seven years. 11 years. Wow. 11 years old. Right? That's the average. Yeah, but you could also think that there's probably a lot of new cars, and then there's a handful of crazy vintage cars. I, I, well, no, that and that would like, drag the average down. I don't know. I mean, sure, that's partly yes, but that, there's mm. still got to be a ton of 15, 16, 17-year-old cars out there. I guess. For that average to be 11 years. So 20 years is about right. If you want that ca- that battery to last as long as a car, you you yeah, you need 20-year batteries, about what you need. And also think about this, Bob. Electric cars, man, they don't have moving parts you know, in the engine itself. They are lower maintenance. though They have a lot more longevity. Yeah. And so... You know, owning an electric car for 20 years, that may become the norm, you know? That'd be quite a change. Yeah, because I think most people do what I do, which is just lease. Right. Because the technology changes so fast. That's that's true, because we're still on the steep part of the curve. Yeah. 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 But, Bob, you're never going to be happy. The thing is, like, 10 years ago... Oh, I could give you a list of things that would make me ecstatically happy, dude. But (laughs) my point is... It's like when we get right now, it's like 10 years ago, we're like, oh, if you just get that range over 300, 350 miles, man, then that would be good. You know, and here we are, like, oh, man, I want that range to be 800, 900,000 miles. <laughs> yeah. And I if want- we were there, it'd be like, oh, imagine if we had a 20,000 mile range car. It's like <laughs> if, you, if you do surveys, everybody thinks they would be happy if they were making 20% more money than they are yes. right now, I, whatever yeah. they're making, as long as they're on a party, <laughs> Right. It doesn't matter. You know? It's irrelevant. Your salary is irrelevant. You it's think you'll all, be happier with a little bit relative. more. It's all yeah, relative. It's all relative where we are I won't, right be, I won't be happy until we're near the limit of physics in terms of energy <laughs> density. Like, oh yep, God, okay. Wow. Even Q Bob, couldn't you, help us with this one. You are choosing to be unhappy then, Bob. No, I mean, there's a lot of technology that makes me very happy, but it's just like batteries. Name one. They, Name it, one. What makes it what makes it extra frustrating is that uh, there is a lot of there's a lot of money going into battery research, and it's such a tough nut to crack. It's a, it's still these little incremental changes, and we've we've come a, a long way. But I mean, you know, we're not we're not there yet. Like the uh, like that battery, that wall, that uh, 
what's it called? The power the power pack? wall. Power, power wall. Yeah. I mean, that's great, but it's not it's not quite there. But that I love the idea of having a huge battery in, in the house. That's that's great. I mean, I'd rather have a fusion reactor buried under the ground that could power my house for a half a century. But you know, we'll get there. <laughs> Yeah, you want to you want to win the lottery instead of just investing in a in a conservative, safe investment that makes you a predictable percentage every year. Well, right. I, mean, I want to be Steve, I yes. want to be alive with one cool, amazing breakthrough, like like the fusion reactor. That would be amazing. Just give me one cool one, right? Fusion AI nanotech. But hey, I'll give you an I'll answer you, Jay. Cell phones, smartphones are amazing tech. I am never without my phone. I love it. I'm addicted to yeah. it, maybe even a little obsessed, but it, that's an awesome bit of technology, Dave. That <laughs> what you have at your fingertips is incredible. So I'm very yeah, happy. How's your, your cell phone, instantly, We instantly took it for granted. Yep. Right. Yeah. right. There's, a, there's right. another one that Hello? Kara's going to be talking about in a few minutes, and that's CRISPR. How about that? Oh, yes. And we'll get yeah. to that in a moment. But Hello? before we talk about that, before we talk about CRISPR, we're going to talk about near-death experiences. NDEs. Yes, there's been sort of a breakthrough in NDE research. Not really. It kind of just told us what we what we already know, but Mostly in a more rigorous experience. way. So, some researchers did an interesting study looking at a what they call neurochemical models of near death experiences. Okay. So they made a comparison between anecdotal accounts of uh, people experiencing psychoactive drugs and anecdotal accounts of people experiencing near-death experience. And they wanted to see, first of all, how similar were they? And second of all, which drug it was the most similar? So they looked at 15,000 reports Ketamine. of people using 165 different psychoactive substances and compared them to 625 uh, NDE, near-death experience, narratives. They did a, a, basically a linguistic analysis, like which reports used the most similar words describing their their experience. Any of you, Kara, maybe you have a guess as to which drug? Ketamine. Had, it was ketamine. That's right. Yeah. Did you read yeah, the article or just do that? that. I, I, no, I've, I've heard that. I've read that for, for many years. I, I think the first time I, I heard about it was um, in uh, reading about Vietnam. They were using it. For uh, for injuries and uh, and yeah. it was, they were inducing out of body experiences and they had to stop using because people were like getting freaked out. But uh, no, I'd, I'd, yeah. So I've done ketamine before. What does and, it feel like? Yeah, it's so. It, I mean, it's classified, I think, as a dissociative anesthetic. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly right. Yeah, so when you take ketamine and you take it in a large enough qu- quantity, which I did, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I took it with people who had been who had probably had more experience with the drug. So I wanted to try it a little bit. And they were like, that won't do anything. You should take this much. This is a good dose. And it was obviously too big of a dose. So I went into what a lot of people will colloquial, colloquially call a K-hole. And that actually is, I think, that sort of near-death experience thing that we're talking about. So my experience was that I was completely paralyzed. What? And I remember, Jeez. yeah, and I remember feeling a little bit like, I can't tell if I can't move or if I'm so I feel so intensely that if I do move I'll puke everywhere. Uh-huh. So I I need to sit really really still. 
because like it feels like if I move, something bad will happen. But probably I couldn't move. And I had an experience. I was with a friend of mine. We were lying on a bed in a party. Um, and we felt like we compared notes after. Like we had been lying still, but floating around the house listening to people's conversations. Wow. So well, we go. had that dissociative oh, okay. experience of leaving our body and like floating around the house. And I think probably because I was an atheist and because I knew I would take I had taken the drug, I wasn't afraid I was dying. But that probably is what people talk about when they talk about yep. leaving their body. Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, so that anyway. that 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 tracks with the research. And mm-hmm. so the ketamine is a NMDA receptor antagonist. That's how it works. Uh, it is you know probably just an endogenous anesthetic, mm-hmm. and. It does get classified as a dissociative anesthetic. It's actually really, it's safe in that it doesn't make you stop breathing like opiates do. So it's a lot better than opiates. So it's also a really good wartime anesthetic as well because you can just kind of give it to people and not worry about the dose or not worry about them stopping breathing. And if they freak out, that's like they have a lot worse things to worry about in the middle of war than a little out-of-body experience. Um, hmm. So it's it's still popular for military use. It's also more recently... It, it it was discovered, and I think this, the Yale researchers uh, happened to be involved in this research. It was discovered that it's a very effective antidepressant. Wow. Oh, wow. Why? Yeah, it's, Especially for a, people who are treatment resistant, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do they know why, Steve? Like, what's it doing? Well, that, it, that, that we're not really sure because so, so its main activity is the NMDA receptor antagonist, but it probably has other activities as well. And, and we don't, we're still trying to sort out what those are. So, but so it's a very interesting, very interesting drug. So the fact is, so you know, obviously, for interpreting the the implications of the NDE experience, that's redundant. The NDE, <laughs> the, ATM uh, machine, the, yeah, <laughs> hey. the ND experience. That's my mistake. <laughs> yeah, like what's your PIN number? That's redundant. Ah, uh, uh, come on, we all do it. I know. <laughs> I don't um, do it. <laughs> so if you can induce these same exact experiences with drugs, yes, then it certainly mind. implies that this is a brain experience and not some kind of spiritual experience. Right. And that, that's a good rule of thumb. Again, this, this gets back to understanding that the brain constructs your experience of reality, of yourself, your connection to your body, your separation from the universe. These are all things that are circuits in your brain are doing. And if you disrupt those circuits, that alters the way your brain constructs your experience of reality in ways you're not, you would not be aware of unless you read neuroscience, right? You just would not intuitively, there's nothing in your life experience that would give you any intuition about how your brain constructs reality for you and how it would break down if, you know, we start turning off the uh, appropriate circuits. So, Therefore, you know, if you experience something that's outside of the range of your normal everyday experiences, like things feel different to you, mm-hmm. it's probably because you're, there's something changing the way your brain is functioning. Although we intuitively interpret that as a supernatural experience. So it's something <laughs> external instead of internal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That. Um, this this experience is hyper real or hyper emotional or whatever. It's it's out. It's you know something really um, spectacular about this experience. Therefore, reality must be different while I'm experiencing it. But that's a, that's 
the the conclusion that everybody has, you know, just intuitively, uh, rather than saying my brain must be constructing reality differently for me right now. But that is clearly the better interpretation. It's just not the one that we intuitively come to. Probably because, you know, what I suspect is that the brain evolved, mammalian brains evolved to create the illusion of reality, right? Mm-hmm. So the it it almost by definition it has to construct reality so that we experience it seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And therefore that seamlessness about how we perceive perceive reality in ourselves, et cetera, means that we, by definition, cannot detect the process itself. And it, and it makes it really hard for us to believe. Yeah, that, we, can't, we yeah. can't even think about it. That's the other that thing to reflective. realize. Yeah, you can't even think about things that you don't have the neurological capacity to think about. And um, I've probably mentioned on the show, for example, like if somebody has... There's a phenomenon, a neurological phenomenon called anosognosia, which is which is the inability to detect that you have a deficit because yeah. the the part of your brain that you would need to to sense the deficit is the part that's not working. Oh, interesting. So is Capgras syndrome a version of that? That's the one where people like I think the imposter syndrome. Mixing. Yeah, yeah, where they think somebody's like replace somebody else and they just can't, like can't believe that it's not yes. real. So. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm not sure if that's an example of anosognosia, mm. to be honest with you, because it, it, but it might be. So that's that is a deficit of the emotional connection yeah. between our visual system and you know and the the limbic system, right? So when we identify an object visually, the visual cortex makes a match, and if it's something that has agency, then we connect it to our emotional center to see what we think about it, what we feel about it, like connected to other memories about it. And if that connection is broken, so like you would see somebody, yeah, Yeah. you would see somebody you recognize, but not feel anything about them. And and people interpret that lack of feeling as, well, that can't be that person. Like if I see my wife, and it does not provoke all of the normal feelings that that has. so bizarre. But that's well, the thing. It people scares the shit out of them. It does, but people assume that, that the world is broken, not that their yeah. brain is broken. That like it's an invasion of the body snatcher situation. Yeah. Like, because I guess it, even if you explain it to them, they're like, "I get it cognitively, but I can't get past how it feels." Exactly. So other yeah. examples would be if you have a certain kinds of aphasia, which is a problem with language, and you may not know that you have a problem with language. And so patients yeah. think that the world is broken, right? So like I had a patient tell me that the phone doesn't work when they, the phone was fine. They just couldn't operate it. Or they think everyone is speaking a foreign language. Not that they have a problem with language, but that now they're suddenly surrounded by people speaking this unknown foreign language. Um, or if they, or they may, oh, um, the, the most dramatic example is if they have uh, left-sided weakness, for example, because of a cortical lesion on the right side. Mm. they can't sense that they have an inability to move. And so they can't even think about that side of their body. How do you convince they, they think, these people oh, that yeah, something's like They yeah. think they're fine. They think they're yeah. fine. But how, how, right? how can you help people to show them that something's amiss? Well, you it, can't sometimes. sometimes yeah, it's you hard. Can, but sometimes you just have to adapt. Like with hemispheric neglect, sometimes you just have to like turn their dinner plate so that they'll eat on the other side of it. Wow. Yeah, but and they'll only eat on part of the other side of it. You essentially have to wait for the brain to rewire itself. But in the in the acute to subacute phase of the lesion, there's nothing you can do. They literally lack the neurological capacity to think about 
with a part of the world that contains their deficit. Well, and do you remember that Oliver Sacks, like one of his books, he wrote about like a super rare experience where there's somebody I think that he was in like he was institutionalized. And every night he would land on the ground out of his bed. And every night the nurses would have to put him back in bed. And they realized that the reason he kept falling out of bed is he would wake up and he thought that the leg and there was a corpse leg in the bed, but it was yeah. actually his own leg. Yeah. And so he'd throw it out of the bed every single night and like refuse to understand that that's his own leg because it like didn't feel like it was a part of his body. Yeah, that's another part of it too. Yeah, Can you help patients, people that have that, Steve? Yeah, in fact, there's a classic test you like to see if they have a cortical stroke. You hold up their arm in front of them and say, whose arm is this? And they will invariably say that's your arm. Wow. Oh, gosh. That's and, that's, and you call that helping them? Well, that's how you first diagnose that's it. A di- it's a diagnostic <laughs> test. Yeah, I mean, again, after weeks of rehab, you know, and the brain plasticity kicking in, you can you can get them to understand intellectually that it's their own arm. And but, therapy. I mean, therapy yeah. helps too. Yeah, it's rehab. Yeah. It's like, oof. Because, because there's an ownership module in your brain. There's a circuit in your brain that tells you that part belongs to you. And if, you, if that's broken, then you think it doesn't belong to you. But again, the, the interesting thing is that you think the world is broken, not that your brain is broken. And that's yeah. you, you ha- it, but that that applies to near death experiences. What people are experiencing are not an otherworldly supernatural experience. They're they're experiencing their brain not working, whether it's due to medication or due to the hypoxia associated with a near death experience. Which is again the other thing is that why this fits is that ketamine may have neuroprotective effects, meaning mm. that when the brain is dying releasing similar endogenous chemicals may be neuroprotective, but also happen to have these, you know, out of body type uh, effects. Um, and, and that, which then people interpret spiritually. So, you know, it says, oh, right. so it's a, it's a, it's a safety you know, just, trigger for the brain basically. Yeah. The desperate attempt to minimize damage to brain cells during some kind of catastrophic event. Yeah. I love, con- I love conversations like this because it makes me think, you know, what modules don't humans have that would allow us to conceive and imagine things that in the universe that we that will be forever lost to us until we could augment ourselves? You know, what I mean, like like a, teaching a dog algebra type of type of thing that something a mm. dog, no, the smartest dog ever, will, will never understand algebra. But so, what what is yeah. it? What modules of circuitry in our brain do we not imagine the fourth dimension? Yeah, was it right angles to reality? reality? You could only imagine. Yeah, I used to do science journalism for the Huffington Post. I did a lot of videos and I interviewed a lot of physicists. And it was when I really first started trying to cover scientific areas that I had zero, you know, background or expertise in. And so every time I interviewed a physicist, I would always ask them if they can see or like understand the world in multiple dimensions, like if they have some sort of skill that I just don't possess. And, you know, obviously everybody said no, except for Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he was like, he was like, you know, pulling my chain, but everybody was like, no, like, I can't see any more than you can. It's just the math works. But Neil was like, oh, totally. Like, you're not in the club. Like, sorry, you can't see in four dimensions. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Well, everyone, we're taking a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bombas Socks. When is the last time that you actually looked inside of your sock drawer? Oh, don't do that. Don't look in your sock drawer. Like, did you buy, (laughs) when's the last time you got new socks? Do your socks have holes in them? Are they all worn out? You need new socks, people. And if you're going to buy new socks, you should buy the best new socks, Bombas Socks. 
Guys, Bomba socks come in hundreds of colors. They're perfect for men, women, and kids. I have several pairs of Bomba socks in varying colors. The socks actually make me feel great. They fit awesome. They stay up. They're firm, but not too tight. And they are just wonderful. It's it's funny to say that about a sock, but these are wonderful socks. And Bombas has a new line of merino wool socks Ooh. that are made from soft, warm, and naturally moisture-wicking merino wool designed with all of Bombas' classic comfort features. From keeping cool and dry on your morning run to staying comfortable in your office's freezing air conditioning like my office, <laughs> Bomba socks are ready to work as hard as you do. Buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash skeptics today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Kara, tell us about those CRISPR studies that we're, that we're doing. Yeah, so CRISPR, we all remember, we talked about this recently, like the trials, I shouldn't even call them trials, the rogue experiment, basically, that was done in China on the twin girls that was supposed to um, supposed to prevent them from uh, getting HIV passed down, which, of course, we know that there were better treatments, so there's a lot of ethical concerns about that. So CRISPR is one of these really interesting technologies where we're not going to do a, a deep dive into CRISPR because we've done that like a thousand times on the show at this point. But it's one of these really interesting technologies where like it's the bleeding edge of amazing things that could happen, but there's also so many ethical concerns around it. So what I wanted to do is on the back of a cool article that I read in Smithsonian, talk about some of the human trials, the first ever human trials that are slated to happen within the United States utilizing CRISPR technology. So there's kind of different buckets. We could we could slice and dice this a few different ways. Haha, <laughs> that was kind of a CRISPR joke, but not really. Um, <laughs> so one of them is a really interesting trial utilizing CRISPR to try and treat a certain type of inherited blindness. It's called Lieber. I don't know if it's Lieber or Leber. Lieber's optic atrophy. Okay, yeah. Lieber congenital amaurosis. So probably yeah. same dude. Um, LCA. And this is a type of inherited blindness that um, happens in childhood. And patients are often very, very young when they're first diagnosed with this. So in this trial, they want to include patients that are as young as three. This one is in a special camp into itself because it's actually the only CRISPR trial sort of on the horizon that plans to do in vivo CRISPR changes. So this is going to be an injection, um, an infection, you could even say, of an adenovirus into the back of the retina to actually affect a change within the photoreceptor genome in these very specific locations. The idea is that it would go in um, using Cas9 to fix this. It, the treatment's called Edit 101, but to fix this portion of the genetic mutation, this is an interesting um, and, and probably a good candidate for a CRISPR trial because uh, Lieber congenital amaurosis is actually caused by a single genetic mutation. So the idea that would be that it would go in and oh, yeah, affect change there, fix the mutation, and hopefully regrow some of these faulty photoreceptor. And when I say photoreceptor, of course, I'm talking about rods and cones um, within the retina. So hopefully regrow some of these cells so that they, a certain percentage of them become normal enough to cause um, or, or lead to an increase in visual acuity in these individuals. They've done previous studies in um, 
in primates and also in donated human retina. And they did see some interesting changes with very few off-target changes. So now they're moving into, uh, I think it's a phase one trial. They didn't specify in this article which ones were phase one and which ones were phase two, but they do say that all of these are phase one and two trials. So Steve, maybe you can just, before I dive into the other ones, a quick um, refresher on what happens in a stage one and a stage two clinical trial. Because we're talking like, does it work and does it hurt you? Right. Yeah. So they're phase one and phase two. So oh, you're right. Sorry, I keep saying yeah, stage. Phase one. Right. Phase one. Yeah, so phase one is just a includes mainly safety. You just want to make sure people okay. aren't going to drop dead. Yeah, and that's important. Pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics. Like you know, they give people different doses. See how they metabolize it. See what their blood levels are. See what the half life is. Just basic nuts and bolts. Bioavailability. You know, just of the pharmacology itself. And mm-hmm. then they'll you know, do start to do some basic, like make sure the kidneys don't fail. There's no, the liver enzymes aren't bumping up, you know, just a whole battery of, of safety testing, EKGs, just look at all the organ systems, make sure there's no organ toxicity with the medication. That's phase one. If it's safe in humans, go to a uh, phase two where you might do more safety testing uh, and you might start to incorporate some preliminary, like open label, uh, efficacy, like say, you know, is there anything, is this having any effect that that we're looking for? And then phase three is when you do a, the multi-center placebo controlled, double blind clinical trials looking to establish efficacy. Yeah. So, and there you're basically like in phase two, you're saying like, does it work? And in phase three, you're saying like, does it work better than what already exists? Well, no, like, ph- phase two is still safety, is mainly still safety. Oh, really? Safety. And just preliminary doesn't preliminary work. Preliminary doesn't work. Okay. Yeah, but but the, the definitive efficacy is phase three. And then phase four is post-market, right? That's gotcha. when you're saying, all right, now how does it work out there in the real world? Mm, which yeah. is you know, kind of, well, I guess it's scary, but it's also part of the... Well, how, how else are you going to do it? Exactly. You, you can only have so many patients involved in a yeah. study. Eventually, it's got to be opened up. So these are all phase one and phase two trials. So basically, we're just um, – or scientists are just trying to understand, is this – harmful. You know, they've often already done this in, in, you know, some level of animals or like donated tissue. And now they want to see like, is it harmful or is it safe for these um, individuals to do that? And then they'll move on. And we're talking timelines of like, you know, some of these trials, just the phase one or phase two trials are set to go on until like 2030 something. Like some of these are really long trials. So keep that yeah. in mind. Um, also keep in mind that the, the one I just told you about, um, uh, visual impairment, that is the only um, CRISPR trial on the books right now in humans in America that is set to utilize an in vivo. Uh, so like within the, the patient's own cells inside their body um, methodology. Everything after that is actually in vitro, meaning that they're going to either take the patient cells out of their body and do the, the changes to the cells like in a Petri dish and then put them back in, or they're going to use donated tissue, make all the changes to that donated tissue and then put that donated tissue back in. Okay, so it's like a little bit of a, a different vibe. So there's a couple different cancer ones, and I'll get the, to those last. But the next one that I wanted to just do a quick and dirty on was um, for sickle cell disease, which is super interesting. We've heard of sickle cell. Um, we know that it causes anemia, but also a lot more than anemia, like pain. And that's because of the shape of the red blood cells that are caused by these hemoglobin clumps. These red blood cells that are supposed to be smooth and round actually become sickle 
shaped. Um, they are sickle cells, and they they cause all these blockages in the in the blood vessels. Which they're also really weird. stiff. And stiff, yeah, yeah. They're, like, they're not flexible. And red so cells are very flexible. So they can squeeze through capillaries. Mm-hmm. The the sickled cells are not flexible, so they get stuck. Yeah, and it causes all sorts of horrible things, right? Your blood is supposed to flow, and in sickle cell, it doesn't flow well. Um, yes, and so, so you get it's really painful. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's a, it's a really interesting thing, right? Because um, it has to do with hemoglobin, right? The the actual genetic change affects the hemoglobin protein. Yeah, it's um, the hemoglobin gene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we've got two different, apparently, or maybe more than two, but we've also got a gene for fetal hemoglobin. So what we're mm-hmm. talking about with sickle cell is usually beta globin, um, beta globin, but fetal hemoglobin actually doesn't have any effect on sickling. And so the idea here is to actually boost the production of fetal hemoglobin in these individuals and like alter it so that the fetal hemoglobin actually takes up more of the sites on the hemoglobin's uh, molecule. And then it, it can lower the likelihood of the actual cell that it contains that hemoglobin um, to change shape, which is really interesting. So the idea here is that they're going to do chemo on their bone marrow cells and then inject these edited stem cells into um, the patient through an infusion. And then there's like a a cutoff, like they want to generate 20% or more um, of the fetal hemoglobin in an effort to sort of like bump out enough of the beta um, to prevent significant changes. Apparently, like at a certain level, there there aren't as many symptoms. So it's not going to completely, you know, get rid of the sickle cells, but it's going to minimize the number of cells that sickle and that um, hopefully will actually give relief and symptoms. So that's kind of an interesting approach. And then the other ones um, in this article, they lump, they talk about them as two different trials, probably because they're being led by two different people, but I'm going to lump them together just to make, to make things easier. Uh, so there are also trials in place for cancer purposes, which we knew, I think early on, this was going to be a big part of the CRISPR sort of revolution. So there is a T cell trial that's going on in an effort to like extract T cells from um, the blood of individuals and then make edits of those T cells. And it would prevent it would do like two different things. So it's like multiple edits. Um, The idea is to modify the T cells to make them better at um, doing their job, which is being a good immune cell and fighting cancer. But there's a secondary modification, secondary edit that would actually cause these modified cells to target cells with a certain marker. Um, And in making that target, it's going to help sort of like be more specific in the the cancer targeting. Um, And so this one is for people with uh, multiple myeloma, Actually, I think this is like multiple cancers. Yeah, because there's a multiple myeloma, there's the sarcoma. Um, So this is just very specific to the patient's own cancer because it's utilizing the patient's own T cells. And then the other cancer trial that is also underway, and these are all in recruitment phases right now, um, or stages, I mixed up phase and stage again, is utilizing donor cells. So it's not using the patient's own T cells, but it's utilizing donor cells to then inject them into the patients to help with um, relapsed or non-responsive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so the difference here is that 
the cells are coming from somebody else and then they're being edited and then they're going in. And so it also has a two tiered approach. One is to target these um, cancers, like by editing these T cells, but the other one of course is to prevent the patients from rejecting the donated T cells. So there's some really interesting stuff underway. um, And I think that this is only the beginning. Like I think we're going to see of course, specific genetic diseases being targeted in these kinds of trials. And definitely I think we're going to see, cancer research being really, really ramped up in like a major way. Um, And there's hope on the horizon. But also, I think you always have to temper that with like, these ethics committees are very, very important. And we have to make sure that this isn't too much too soon. Because I think everybody gets very, very excited about the possibility and the potential for good reason. But also, we need to remember that this is a very powerful tool. And that we don't know what's going to happen. We think we know, but we need to make sure that we're doing everything by the book and keeping up with every step of the game so that we can make sure that if some sort of like, you know, effect that we didn't know about um, starts to proceed that we... Like superpowers. Well, you know what? It's interesting. I mean, it's not interesting. You say superpowers. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. But it's interesting, um, th- this idea. In this article, they actually talk about clinical trial, a clinical trial in 1999. So this is way before CRISPR, but it's gene editing. So, you know, we've had the potential to do gene therapy and gene, not gene therapy, but gene editing for quite some time. Now it's just kind of cheaper and more targeted with CRISPR, right? And a little bit easier. Um, but they did a gene uh, therapy phase one trial and, and a famous patient named Jesse Gelsinger died yes, at 18. Yes. This was a big thing. That like. Was- Stop the research dead in the tracks. For Stop a while. the research dead in the tracks. Um, they uncovered all sorts of ethical concerns about like conflicts of interest and who was involved in the study and did they pull the trigger too soon and did they, you know, what? How, why did they make those decisions? And it really like made a lot of people stop and think: Are we moving too much too fast? And are, do we want it to happen so badly that we're cutting corners to make it happen? faster. And that's the thing that I think, I don't think anybody here is trying to be nefarious. It's just we want to see people get well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about this. I think a lot of people are very excited about this. But also, I think we have to make sure that we're doing it the right way. And it seems like, hopefully, uh, the individuals who are involved in these really groundbreaking trials are doing that. They're following the ethical guidelines of any other drug development. It's just this one happens to be really cool in editing the genes of these people. Yep, and just like all other technology, it's still going to ultimately be incremental. It's going to take a longer time mm-hmm. than it seems up front. Like these clinical trials just take years. That's just the years. way it is. And some but, of them like decades. Yeah, but <laughs> this is like moving faster than most new technologies. CRISPR yep. is amazing. Fun, isn't it, Steve? It is, but <laughs> I hope that we're going to start to see like major genetic diseases or diseases that have a major genetic component start getting knocked off one by one as we – can crisper our way out of it. I mean, it's the potential is amazing, right? Oh yeah, it is. For sure. yeah, it's, 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 it's one of the it's one of the most transformative technologies that come to come yeah. about. In, yeah, in and in our decades. lifetime, Bob. Yeah, it's true. Yep. It's absolutely true. Almost as transformative as that new research evident into holy water, right? Oh, <laughs> it's this is going to transform medicine. Sorry, Kara. This this news story uh, is, gets the best of your CRISPR. New story, I'm afraid. <laughs> 1858. Ooh, All right. Yes, okay. we're going back. <laughs> the village of Lord, and it's not Lords, I figured out today. It's Lord. 
Yeah, I've been really pronouncing it Lords all my life. Everyone says Lords. Well, everyone it's, in um, America. <laughs> Good point, Kara. <laughs> so the village of Lord, it rose to prominence both in France and around the world due to the claim that a local peasant girl named Bernadette Subro had seen an apparent apparition of the Virgin Mary. Not just once. App- apparition. Apparition. I said apparition. I'm sorry, it's pronounced apparitions. <laughs> I'll try that again. Local peasant girl, Bernadette Subara, saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary. How's that? Yeah. But awesome. she didn't see it just once. She saw it 18 times over a span of several weeks, February and March of that year. Now, particular to today's news item, on February 25th, 1858, young Bernadette explained that the vision had told her to drink the water of the spring, to wash in it, and to eat the herb that grew there. Apparently, this was supposed to be an act of penance. Okay. Not eating herbs may have had something to do with the visions, but that's a, more of a side note. The point is, not long thereafter, the city with the sanctuary of Our Lady of Lords, and that's what the apparition is named, it had become one of the world's most important sites of pilgrimage and religious tourism. Few quick facts. Lord hosts 6 million visitors every year. Damn. It has only second to Paris as far as the most tour, the, the biggest center of tourism in France and is the third most important site in all of Catholicism besides Rome and the Holy Land. Lord is third on that list. Kind of sad. Yeah, in a way it, in a way it is sad. But the news in any case is this. Here's the head here's one headline I read today. Man from Britain who believes Lord Holy Water cured his cancer is going to have his claims tested by a board of doctors. Wow. His name is Kazakh Stepan. Back in 1965, he thought his life was over when he was diagnosed with an inoperable tumor on his spinal cord, and he was just 18 years old at the time. But with determination and some considerable skepticism from his doctors that Kazakh could even endure a trip from Britain to France, he managed to make the trip and he partook in the bathing. And it took place on September 8, 1965. And supposedly that's a very important date because Catholics celebrate it as the birthday of the Virgin Mary. Happy birthday. Kazakh claims to have experienced a miracle after he bathed in the water and it enabled him to walk for the first time in months because of its reporting healing properties. He's still alive. He's still, well, alive. He's 71 years old now, <laughs> and he's returning to Lord to see if his miracle is going to be verified by, get this, the International Medical Committee of Lord, which is comprised of 30 doctors. Holy crap, and pun intended there, they have a medical committee to determine if a person experienced a healing miracle of some kind, that is mm. that is something. All right, here's the criteria by which these doctors wait, and this is today. Oh yes, that's right. Okay, yep. This is not in the 1800s. No, no, okay. no. This is this is today's headline. <laughs> I know Jeez. it's happening right now as we speak, basically. So these doctors. All right, for a cure to be recognized as well, they call it medically inexplicable. They're not allowed to... De- these doctors are technically not allowed to de- determine if something's a miracle. That is for the Catholic Church, 
to decide through their own rules and regulations. What they do is they recognize conditions as medically inexplicable. And in order to be to to have it recognized as such, you have to establish these facts. Here's their little checklist. The original diagnosis must be verified and confirmed beyond doubt. The diagnosis must be regarded as incurable with current means. The cure must happen in association with a visit to Lord, typically while in Lord or in the vicinity of the shrine itself, although you don't have to drink the water and you don't have to bathe in the water. Those are not required. The cure must be immediate. The cure must be complete. And the cure must be permanent. No recurrence. No backsies. No backsies. So a full investigation takes a minimum of five years. That's in order to ensure that the cure is permanent. It may take as long as 10 or 12 years for any given claim. This one has gone quite a while. If the claim was made in 1965 and only now in 2019, they're, they're dealing with it. So it's, it's had a lot of time. And they vote. It becomes a vote. And if two-thirds of the doctors say it's inexplicable, then it's inexplicable. Then it's handed off to the church, and they decide if it's going to be a miracle or not. So since then, about 7,000 people have claimed to have been healed in some way by their visit to Lord. Uh, only 70 have been deemed both in- medically inexplicable and a miracle by the church. Mm. Right. So the one on the one hand, we have to question the legitimacy of the process, um, and does it hold up to independent verification? Uh, it sounds like the answer is mostly no, but let, but uh, the other thing is after how many people have visited Lord millions, millions, six million a year. It's up to six million a year. You have seventy cases. So what's the probability out of the millions and millions of cases that there's going to be some, you know, residue of unusual, inexplicable cases? It's like you know the really good UFO sightings. Yeah, you got millions of crappy ones, and there's going to be this little residue of ones that just happen to be really unusual, just by statistics alone. For if you were somebody who thought that they were real, that still is horrible odds. It's still a million to one, or something thereabouts. Right. That's that you're right. going to be that you're going to be healed. So again, so most it's basically consistent with like there not being any magic, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you exactly what you would expect if visiting Lord did nothing. All right, thanks, Seven. Yep. So just a, just want to do a quick a quickie follow up because we talked about this previously that the idea of doing a DNA analysis of an environment in order to tell all the things that live uh, there. Remember this? We talked about doing this in the Loch Ness. Sure. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Take the water, and you could just basically see what DNA is in the water. So they a, a recently a study was completed doing a DNA analysis of Loch Ness uh. and. Keep in mind, this was actually a serious ecological investigation. They were really asking, like, what lives in the, in the lock? And the whole idea of looking for the Loch Ness Monster was just sort of a gimmick, you know? Right. But they really just wanted to see, like, what, ecologically speaking, what's living there. Um, they didn't find anything that was mysterious, right? So there was no, like, unknown large reptiles or, you know, anything that could actually be a Loch Ness monster. Not that we have any no plesiosaurus material. Yeah, no plesiosaurus or anything like that. What they did find was a lot of eels. Okay. And so this of course leads to the analysis, the the headlines that you know the Loch Ness monster may be a giant eel. 
say scientists. Like, that's not really what they're saying. There no. is no Loch Ness monster. They're just saying there are eels in the in the Loch. And that's something that the locals could tell you without the DNA analysis, right? They know that there are eels in there. I'm sure they've um, been fishing eel out of there for many, 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 many years. But there's just a, uh, there's maybe more than they were realized, you know, so the DNA shows how ubiquitous they are in the Loch because they were in every location that they that they looked at. There was a lot of hmm. a lot of eel DNA. So that's it. I mean, it's it's interesting that you know we now have the technology to do such a thorough survey of a body of water, see what what's living in there just by you know amplifying the DNA. That's a really powerful tool. They also that's found cool. human DNA in the in the lock. So oh boy, I, and I, I wonder I, to what degree. Yeah, I doubt that there's anybody living <laughs> in the lock, but it just shows you that just even <laughs> Aquaman. Swimmers, bathers, or whatever, you know, people have gotten their DNA into the lock, and there it is, you know. Uh, no big feet, though. No Loch Ness Monster. None of that. None of, nothing, the, none of the stuff we really want. There. Nothing yeah. cryptozoological. No Do you way. remember when we were in Scotland? Oh, yeah. yeah. Our amazing tour, <laughs> tour bus driver was awesome. like, Do you guys want to go to Loch Ness? And we all started laughing. <laughs> and she was like, What? And we're like, Let us tell you a little bit about what we do. <laughs> No, she w- she was happy because she's like, oh, that's yeah. great because Loch Lomond is so much better, but everyone wants to go to Loch Ness. And like, no, yeah. no, take us to the prettier one. That's what we mm-hmm. want to see. We don't care about, you know, we, we know we're not going to see Nessie. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. No, she and Loch, and Loch Ness was also kind of off of our route for the day. We would have had to yeah. detour yes. and miss some and other things. And it's full of tourists. And it's I'm full not- of yeah, yeah, tourists, full, yeah, right. Tourist trap. We probably wouldn't have gotten yeah. to Glencoe. Tourist and eel DNA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's like they have like a love hate relationship with the Loch Ness legend because it's like what every tourist thinks of. You know, the Highlands were beautiful and the locks are beautiful, but everyone's oh like, Loch Ness. But it does drive tourism. So it's kind of like the movie Braveheart. They have a love hate relationship exactly. with that movie. Mm. It drives a lot of interest in, in Scottish history and a lot of tourism, but they hate the fact that it was so historically inaccurate. What, what are you going to do? Yep. Uh, so it's interesting, though, like the way they react to that. And it was just funny when she's like, oh, thank God I don't have to go to the lock. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, that was such a great trip. What a great it was. day that so was. Good. Yep. The if you have an opportunity perfect. to visit oh, the, the Highlands, it's definitely a, a place to visit. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. Steve, have you ever heard the phrase, you don't know what you don't know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you have, because I say it to you all the time. The, the thing here is The Great Courses Plus is the perfect place to help you fill in those mental gaps. You could do it with the Great Courses Plus. It's true. There are thousands of lectures on virtually any topic that you can think of. They're all presented by top professors. And I'm talking about everything from human nature to space missions to even playing guitar. And with the Great Courses Plus app, it makes it easy to watch or listen anytime, anywhere. And this week, uh, we're talking about the course, An Introduction to Formal Logic by Professor Stephen Gimbel. Uh, this is a great course. It goes over formal logic, like relational logic, introducing logical identity. Jay, do you know what modal logic is? I or certainly how about do not. Three-valued and fuzzy logic. Hmm. If you don't know what all of these words mean, then you should definitely download and listen to this course. Expand your mind. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus. And right now, for our limited time only, our listeners can get an entire month for free when you sign up using our exclusive URL, 
thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, who's that noisy time? Last week I played this noisy. Okay, so apparently a lot of people guessed amazingly correctly about this one. This might be the most responded noisy I've ever done and the most correctly guessed noisy I've ever done. Hmm. So I'll just re- real quick, I'll go through a couple of, of the wrong guesses. Uh, Jim Kelly wrote in, I think this week's noisy is the sound of the fans in a wind tunnel starting up. Um, I totally can understand Jim, why you think that is uh, what the sound is? It's a very good guess. It's not correct, but it, you know I can totally hear like that wind uh, fan noise going on. Another listener named Joss Elias said, "Hey, my first guest in. I've been listening for a few years, and I've only ever heard a couple. I had a real guess at. I think this is possibly Formula E cars leaving the pit lane." Or a slow speed corner somewhere on the track. Hmm. And he wants me to say hello to Kara. And uh, he's an amateur freshwater fish breeder in Southern California. Oh, very Um, cool. This was a good guess. And I'll tell you why. When I read the winner, you'll understand why that that was a not so far off the mark guess. So the winner from last week. Now, I'm going to say this. That this thing, this noisy, occurs in many cities around the world. Wait, Bob, I have to say this because the person who guessed didn't guess the correct (laughs) city, did did guess correctly, however, right? So, you know, I don't want to like tie this to the city because of how how many places this is happening around the world. So Will Samuel said, hi, team. The noise this week sounds a good deal like the London Underground. I think it's a train accelerating as recorded from the platform. I've also heard a similar sound on overground electric trains. And in the Singapore metro, I suppose the electric motor must be connected to a gearbox with many gears in it or something. So, yes, you did win, Samuel, even though you got the city and the uh, country wrong. It is an electric train. So let me get back to uh, Thayer Murphy, who wrote in. He said, um, so I love the show. I've been listening for a few years and finally got something less boring to send. Uh, and he says, uh, so it is a me- it is a metro train, but not just any electric train. I live in Sydney, Australia, and although we have a large Largest size train network with about 175 stations. The normal trains with normal human train drivers. This is operated uh, by the state government. But in in late May of this year, a new line of driverless metro trains was opened to the public. So the sound of one of these trains taking off for an underground station. The new train line is only 13 stations currently in the northwest of Sydney. And he keeps going on. But the sound uh, he recorded, he was at work and he's currently working for the said train company. Um, and he said that the f- trains are fully automated. The drivers are guard. There is a, with no drivers or guards on the train. And when the train stops at the platform, has a set time to stay there. And then the train takes off. It's uh, an electric train. And this is what electric trains sound like. And this is what the electric motors on trains sound like. I had people guess Washington, D.C. I had people guess wow. tons of people from London, the London Underground, London Underground. I heard so many times. Mm. But I heard all over the world these electric trains exist. Um, this one happens to be in Australia, but uh, indeed the winner was Will. Good guess, Will. Will guessed. Now, Steve, check this out. He sent me the email 
at 11.57 a.m. on September 7th. What time did you publish that show? I think at 11 a.m.? Yeah. So one of the quickest guesses of all time for Who's That Noisy. So very good. Uh, I thought that was a lot of fun because he, if he did listen as soon as it dropped, he got right to that point, which makes sense because you know, I usually do Who's That Noisy about 20 minutes before the show ends. Mm, yeah. Unless we do emails. So anyway, great guess by everyone. Thanks for writing in. I got a lot of fun conversation out of a, a, quite a few people that were telling me interesting tidbits about uh, where they're from and, and why they know the noise. I have a new noisy this week, and this week's noisy was sent in by a listener named Carl Milner. Tell me what you think of this one. I'm going to give you a little little information here. I would imagine that that noise goes on for quite a while, doing what it's doing, whatever is happening uh-huh. and, and being done huh. to whatever well, is being done to whoever or whomever or whatever or however. Must be that new lithium-ion battery that lasts 20 years. Yeah. I imagine that they, they last a long time, a million but they miles, that, but they but sound they make terrible. that noise. <laughs> they, they scream when they do <laughs> So – if you think you know what this noisy is or you heard something cool this week, you can email me at WTN at org. Steve. Yeah. Patrons. Sure. Patrons of the SGU are the wind beneath our wings because they help us continue to do what we're doing in so many unbelievable ways. So, uh, you know, I'm dead serious when I tell you guys that patrons ha- made it possible for me to work full-time for the SGU. And because of my working full-time, so many – Things have uh, been able to happen and so much improvements and, you know, working on multiple different projects. Um, and I can't thank the patrons enough for, for doing what they do. There are perks to becoming an SGU patron. Not only will you get all of our appreciation and help us continue doing the show, we give our patrons different re- rewards or awards. I'm not even sure what we're supposed to be calling them, but rewards. you get stuff. The rewards. You get stuff depending on um, your level of contribution. I, I would like to please ask you if you've enjoyed the show and you have the ability to help support the work that we do, then please go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide and please consider at least go there, watch the video and, and take a read on what we do and what, what you could do to help us and what you might get back depending on your level. I have something else to say, Steve, something else yeah. of great importance. We will be in Australia and New Zealand doing lots of different stuff, going to two different conferences, hopefully meeting hundreds of people that we haven't met before and seeing a bunch of people that we have met before. At these conferences, there will be multiple events we will be doing at both conferences. We will absolutely be doing a private SGU show. Dates and locations are finally being finalized, some of which were happening during the recording of this show well, I was sneaking an email off here and there to uh, to talk to my uh, friends that live oh so far away from the United States, and they're they're getting up for work, so this is a good time to be chit chatting with them. So I I really do fully intend on having the final information settled very soon for those private shows. But please go to our website, check out our events, and under the under the SGU events, you can see a listing of the conferences and the. Um, the websites for those conferences, and and all the details that they are continuing to add to those websites about other speakers. So please consider going, at the very least, go check out those websites. If you're local and if you're not local and you want to go on an awesome trip, go. 
Get on an airplane for crying out loud. Get out of that dungeon. Stop hanging around your parents' basement playing video games and go to a skeptical conference and meet your wife or husband or boyfriend or whoever. And as Steve said, we are going to be in Los Angeles doing the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and George Robb. We combine our laser beams and become the skeptical extravaganza of special significance. It's a one to two hour live comedy infused science and skepticism infused infused stage performance where we have a ton of fun. Lots of people have seen us do the show. The good news is if you've seen it, the show is never the same show twice because we have we rewrite everything. The content's so might, always different. Yeah. The content is different. The bits could be the same, meaning we could run the same improv bit, but the content that drives the bit is completely different. So there is Although never, we, we are doing yeah. a major rewrite of the show this month so that if any future extravagances will be significantly different than the previous ones. Yeah, we've learned a there'll, lot from the running new it for bit. five There'll years. be some old bits that we can't read forward, but there's going to be a lot of new stuff. Yeah. We have one in particular that we're, Steve and I are very excited about. It has to do with a wheel. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so please fun. come check us out. That that Eventbrite will be up soon as well. You know, everyone's got to give me some time because Dragon Con was all consuming. Oh, and by the way, Dragon Con went awesome for all, all hands on deck. It was great. It was we all had a great time. Yeah, it was great. All right, thank you, Jay. So, guys, let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. I feel like I may have used this theme before, but it doesn't matter. I'm sure you have. The theme is the electric eel. Electric eel. Yep, I knew it. Yeah. (laughs) How did I know, Kara? (laughs) All right. Here are three items about the electric eel. I'm going first. Item number one. Electric eels are not true eels, but knife fish, a group closely related to catfish. That contains 220 species that all have electricity-producing organs. Item number two, electric eels are obligate air breathers coming to the surface for air and can drown if they get stuck underwater. And item number three, the electric organ of an electric eel is entirely located under its chin, which it places on animals it wishes to, to deliver a maximum shock. Jay, why don't you go first? All right, this first one right out of the gate. The electric eels are not true eels, but they're knife fish. Wrong. I don't believe this. That's ridiculous. A knife fish is a knife fish, which is not related to or has anything to do with an electric eel. They probably don't even like each other. So I am going to say that 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 one is absolutely false. I don't even have to go to the other ones. That one is the fiction. But I will say electric eels are obligate air breathers. That I didn't know, and and I know nothing of whether that's true or not. And the last one, the electric eel's organ is electric eel is entirely located under its chin. That makes perfect sense to me um, because, you know, if you watch Star Wars, the uh, the Return of the Jedi, <laughs> when the Emperor is shooting lightning from his fingertips, you could see him smile invoking his chin electric organ action. That's where the electricity was coming from. Thank you very much for science. I will move completely back to the first one and say that that's bullshit. Knife fish or knife fish. Thank All you. right, Bob. 
Let's see. The obligate air breathers make sense. I don't – I have no reason to think that that's wrong. Uh, so I'll just go with that one. The electric organ, it just sounds weird to have it under its chin. But I, I really just can't – You know, how could I dispute Jay's Star Wars uh, explanation? Um, so he really can <laughs> he really convinced me on that. I mean, the only thing oh. left to go with is a knife fish is, is fiction. I mean, what else? I have no choice. Okay, Evan. Uh, wow, Jay convinced me. Jay, that was the most convincing science or fiction ever. <laughs> wow, I killed it. Thank Bravo. you. Bravo. I'm so yeah. I'm so with you. I'm going Thank with you. Jay. Okay, and lemming number four, Kara. Oh, nice. Wait, so you guys all think it's the knife fish one? Apparently. Jay is That's positive. What said. But have you ever seen a knife fish? That's not a um, knife fish. I can't say that I have or haven't because that would give you an unfair advantage in this game well, there's that a we're beautiful right okay, so there's a beautiful fish uh, called a black ghost knife, and so I'm assuming that's a knife fish, and they're eel like. They're long and they ripple when they swim, and they don't like have fins, or if they do, you can't see them. So, like, why could an electric eel not be a knife fish? That one was like the first one that I was like, yeah, I buy it. The obligate air breather thing freaks me out because I had no idea that fish could do that. But I think like the one that freaks me out the most is the one about like some sort of weird organ because I feel like you're not supposed to get near an electric eel at all because like they'll shock you from anywhere. That's what I always thought. Like that they can shock you for it's like their skin or something. So I don't know. I don't know how they work at all, but I thought like you could get zapped from their head, from their tail, from anywhere. So I'm gonna say that the the organ one is the fiction. That's a shocking answer, Carol. Is it? Yes. Yeah. <sighs> Christ, <laughs> it's gonna be. You better not be right, goddammit, because all Here's you the did thing. was gallivant for the last month while I studied science. I feel like <laughs> I did study wildlife. <laughs> I didn't study electric. That's eels. not science. My biggest concern <laughs> is that Steve just swept us. Me too. That and bastard. the air breather thing because the air breather thing really does bug me too. But like, I don't I like the air breather. What do you mean they're obligate air breathers? I don't even know yeah, what, what the hell that, that it's means. It's a fish. They it's not a mammal. To survive. I don't it's like required. it. I think but they all have to breathe too. air. They they breathe dissolved oxygen through their through their gills. They're fish from their head right down to their eels. Ugh. But I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with <laughs> my my uh, shock organ on this and say that it's not the chin thing. Because that's weird. Okay, so you guys <laughs> all agree that electric eels are obligate air breathers coming to the surface yeah. for air. No, and can drown but if they get stuck <laughs> underwater. Yep, here we I go. do not. But okay, ready? Guys, all they have to do is okay. like they all they have to do is lift their chin out of the water. He's so excited right now. No, I'm not. I'm you actually guys scared. All no, think is. this one is science, <laughs> yes. and this one is science. Thank you. Oh, Yay. good. So no sweep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Steve, let me ask direction. you a question. Yes. Do they actually have to stick their mouth out of the water yes. and breathe air? Yes, they yeah, do. They like that gum, sucks gum, 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 when gum. you're a fishy type of eel. <laughs> now, let's, this, let, let me give you a little bit of background on electric <laughs> eels. They live largely in South America. They eat electricity. The Amazon. <laughs> they, and they eat shock There's a wet season and a dry season. During the wet season, there's water all over, over the, the place. place. Oh, water. Right? So the rivers are overflowing, and they're connecting all the lakes, and uh, they're flush with fresh water. Now, during the dry season, the rivers recede, and the lakes, the lakes can be isolated. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And they're also smaller, so the eels 
can wind up in an, in a lake that they can't get out of until the wet season comes back, mm-hmm. and and this lake could be smaller, and they could be susceptible to predators. But most important for this item is that those lakes could be very oxygen poor. Yes. Right. So now they're stuck in this poor, in this low oxygen water. So predators everywhere. Their adaptation with predators everywhere. They evolved the ability to breathe air. They bring so and they have um, this extensive vasculature in their mouth, and so they basically exchange air in their mouth. Question, Steve? Yeah. Mouth. Why in the Matrix did the um, (laughs) the artificial intelligences decide to use humans for batteries instead of electric eels? That's a really good question. I would have used electric eels. Me too. Maybe in the in the fourth movie they'll address that. I would use the fusion that they use to to run everything else. I think I think the AIs did it just to screw with the humans. I agree. Just to mess I do too. With it, that's the only thing that makes sense. It is. To yeah, trap the battery us. thing is a pretense. They were obsessed with their makers and they couldn't let it go. Yep. Clearly. Yep. What's going on right now? Yeah. <laughs> what's happening? What's, what's happening? Kara, they're making a new Matrix movie. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> The Matrix, oh you know, if you don't know about this, like, I clearly need to come it. hang out with you in Los Angeles and, yeah. and watch movies with you soon. And definitely not talk about it at almost 11 p.m. Yeah. But what's funny, <laughs> my daughters, when they watched The Matrix, they loved it. They loved The Matrix, but, but. they didn't get how revolutionary the movie was because all of the stuff oh, that was cool right. about it mm-hmm. has right. been duplicated so many times. Yep. And I had yeah. to explain to them – that was the first movie where that bullet time thing happened. It's a cliche uh, now, but yeah. this is what established it. But anyway. Jurassic Park has the same. Feature. Should I go to number one or number three next? I don't number three. care. You could do what you want anyway. As long as the electric the organ number. of an electric eel is entirely located under its chin, which it places on animals it wishes to deliver a maximal shock. I, Steve, I get it. It's a mouth organ that they have <laughs> under their chin. That's, that's how they play the damn thing. Kara, you think this one is the fiction. The boys think this one is science. And this one is Say the it. fiction. Kara. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, you yes. Suck, Kara. It may not be suck. for the reason you think, though. Oh, it's so, probably not. It never is. <laughs> never is. It, this is the fiction because the electric eel has three electric organs oh. and comprising 80% of its body. Oh, okay. Wow. So it's most of it. It's mostly an gotcha. electric, electric producing organ. So that's all they do. So However, kind of like don't touch one. And its internal organs are all like small and and isolated away. And like the most of its body, 80% is the electric, it's three electric organs. Steve, um, if an electric eel has a heart attack, can it electrically shock its heart back into pumpkin? Yeah, imagine <laughs> that. But they could do it that's to each awesome. other maybe. But there's a kernel of truth in here because – the under the chin is where it delivers its maximal shock. It will now it can shock animals through the water, right? It doesn't have to touch them at all. What they do is they use their electrical production for um, communication, for navigating, and for hunting. And it'll deliver this uh, like double little shock if it thinks that there may be prey nearby. It will give a two like a double quick shock. And you know what know what that's for? It it causes the fish to twitch. It's hmm. it, it actually contracts its muscles with an external electrical shock, and then it could detect the twitching in the water 
and then it eats it. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Then it, well, then it gives it a maximal, it gives it a big shock, you know, to stun it, and then it eats it. So it does mm. like the, the two quick shock. That's just to see if there's anything there by causing the, 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 the prey fish to twitch, and then it will give a stunning shock. But it also uses the shock to scare away predators, which are often animals that are trying to hunt it in the shallow pools that it might be stuck in, uh, like an alligator, for example. So what it does to to uh, to those types of animals, it actually climb, it jumps out of the water and attaches its chin to it under you know underneath its head, its chin, and the farther it gets out of the water, the greater the voltage difference, hmm. and and the more of a shock that it delivers. And it, oh, it, geez, yeah, okay. so it could deliver a wow. pretty ma- eight hundred and sixty volt shock. Oh, Although I didn't realize only, they were that dangerous. Only a, only about one amp, though. So not a lot of amps, but a oh, big okay. shock. So and that could you know definitely f up even a big animal like a like a alligator. Wow. Uh, to a human, uh, human uh, deaths from electric eels are rare. So the shock is not enough to like directly kill a person, unless you got like a pacemaker or a weak heart or something. Mm, yeah. It could it hurt it, though, right? It would absolutely hurt like hell. <laughs> <laughs> However, it can it has stunned people enough that they drown. That's oh, what happens. Yeah. Because it's like yeah. what just happened to me. Yeah, like you can't move your legs suddenly and shot and they drown so in shallow scary. water. Yeah. All right. This means that electric eels are not true eels, but knife fish, a group closely related to catfish that contains two hundred and twenty species that all have electricity producing organs, is science. Uh, it's not a true eel. The entire group of knife fish, of knife fish can pre- have these electricity-producing organs. They use it primarily for communication and maybe navigation, but it's primarily for communication, not as hunting, though. So, which makes sense, and this is very common. We see this evolutionarily. Like, you see a creature that has some amazing ability, and you think, well, how did that evolve out of nothing? But they're usually related to animals that have a that have an incipient version of that thing, right? So in this case, they related to a whole group of animals that all have electricity producing organs. These electrocytes, right? The electrocytes produce the electric the static electric charge that the organs could then store and then release suddenly. But in this, so it's just a, a specialized version of this organ. It's like if you only imagine if hummingbirds were the only birds that survived. I would think, how the hell did this animal evolve, <laughs> you know, the, the ability to fly that way? But it, if you didn't know that they were related to, you know, hundreds of species of, of birds that flew in a, in a less, you know, extremely adapted fashion. Or I just think of like, like those beetles that shoot stuff at you. Yeah, there's other beetles that shoot stuff in less extreme ways, you know, for other reasons. Uh, there's always some derivative, you know, transitional feature. So it's the same for this. And so it's, it's debatable whether or not knife fish are in the same group as catfish or just related groups. In other words, the exact ordering evolutionarily of the groups is a little bit in, in, in debate, but they're definitely closely related. And uh, while I was doing research for this piece, I discovered there are electric catfish. Wow. Yeah, there are catfish that are basically like electric eels. Now, what prompted this theme this week was a news item, which I actually didn't ultimately use. So we used to think there was one species of electric eel. And recently we discovered that this one species is actually three species. 
and that was due to a combination of genetic analysis, but also morphological analysis. They all look the same. They, you can't tell them really from just looking at them. Uh, but they do have different ranges of their power. And part of this was based on the fact that they discovered the most powerful, you know, population of electric eels. This is the the ones that could release. They measured their uh, of their electric shock at 860 volts, which is now the most powerful electric animal on the planet. Is that one species of electric eel? Definitely wow. cool. I mean, a really good job, Kara. Adaptation. Yay. Yeah. Thank he you. sniffed Good it job. out. I said with with immense confidence that the knife fish was not them because I <laughs> thought I was correct. I'll and never I, trust your confidence again. Well, Sorry, Jay, <laughs> I, I do have to say, which is something that's always funny for me listening to the show live and editing the show, is that there does appear to be an inverse relationship between your confidence <laughs> and your <laughs> correctness. I'm going to have to so remember it, that. It's yeah. funny that you're often – remember, somebody actually did a mashup of this, of Jay saying, I'm absolutely sure that this is the answer when he's wrong, completely wrong. And, and you find this humorous, I take it. I do. <laughs> it's very humorous. <laughs> you know, I, I learned from science or fiction that uh, just a lot of information gets into our – slips into our minds. Yeah. You don't remember where it came from. You feel like you know something or you get a tickle or you're like, oh, sometimes you feel like very strongly about it. But I, I got to be honest with you, though. There is a difference like, for example, if we were to, I don't know, be talking about, say, Thanksgiving. Yeah. I know that when we were talking about that science or fiction where I was confidently winning the Thanksgiving uh, science or fiction, there's a different feeling in my head versus like me tonight. because you know I, it. I just, you know, thinking, you know. I, I thought that I knew what a knife fish was because I've read about knife fish before. And that's Have what you gave seen me seen a ghost. Like, I think it's called a black ghost knife fish. But no. there's 220 species, Kara, and some of them no, look I like know. catfish. You know, they don't oh, look like yeah, yeah. But like that helped me. Like you guys Google yeah. it. They're gorgeous. And the only reason I know this is because I saw it once in a pet store and fell in love with it. And it's always mm. stuck in my head. Well, there it yeah. is. That That's like your um, slum dog millionaires like you know that's where you had that piece of information from yeah and the, even the black ghost knife fish its face actually looks a little catfishy now that i'm yeah. looking up close yeah but it's wiggly and even eel even eel faces look a little catfishy yeah weird yeah. so these are different than the eels that are in loch ness yes those are real those are true those are real eels, eels. Yeah. yeah okay absolutely yeah they have nothing to do with each other Except they both appeared in this episode of the SGA. <laughs> and they're both called they're... eels for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. When any prevailing prejudice is attacked, the wise will consider and leave the narrow-minded to rail with thoughtless vehemence at innovation. And that was written by a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley from ah, her book Mary a Vindication. Well, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. This is actually the mother oh, cool. of Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame. Oh, so cool. her mother who, who, who wrote this and who wrote the book. Treatise. Yeah, the treatise, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. It's considered one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. Wow. And basically it argues that women should have an education commensurate with their position in society. And that it's, an, it's essential for the nation in the nation's best interest, frankly, for, for women yeah. to be educated appropriately. I mean, 1792. Wow. So, Ahead of her time. 
Well, boy, I tell you. Well, she was vindicated. Absolutely. It took, took a, a couple while. hundred years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? A couple cent- century and a half yeah. later, but uh, it, it finally caught up. But she was yeah. one of the first ones. And without her, we wouldn't have Frankenstein. That is exactly mm, that's correct. That's true, yeah. It's pronounced Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein. <laughs> you have to see the Well, that's Igor then, isn't it? Thank you, Steve. <laughs> sure. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Thank sure. you. You got it, man. And welcome back, Kara. Thank you. Yay. We missed you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 